All right, good evening. We are going to start by singing hymn number 628, if you need the hymnals, My Savior's Love. Um, there are a lot of songs we're singing tonight all about God's love for us, and we're going to start uh, by singing this. The chorus goes, How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. Oh, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. So let's start. Let's stand together. We'll sing hymn 628, Marveling in Jesus' Love for Us. jump to verse number four. We're going to skip verse three, sing four and five. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his Great singing, you may be seated. All right, appreciate Nathan's uh, serving in this capacity, his first time at least here leading uh, congregational singing. He was supposed to call on somebody to pray, but he blew it. His first chance, and he, you know, I, was, I actually was thinking, I wonder if he's going to well, I was wondering if I had told him or Samuel had told him, so it's probably one of us that blew it, not telling him that. But I actually remembered back to leading my first service in ministry in Alexandria, Virginia. 
and I told people to stand when they normally sit or sit when they normally stand, but whatever happened, they didn't do it. And it was awkward, and I said it again, like, let's all stand, and they sat. <laughs> so I adjusted and did what they did, and the next morning I, got, I had a note from the pastor I was serving under, and um, he said, don't worry about last night, and then he said seven most famous words in a Baptist church is we've never done it that way before. So <clears throat> and he said, we'll, we'll work through this, but at any rate, um, good to have each of you here. Brother Matt Herbster, would you lead us in prayer, ask the Lord's blessing in our service. sure Samuel thought I had probably been here long enough and knew to call on someone to pray. But anyway, we're going to sing hymn number 29. Uh, you can remain seated for this one. Um, again, continuing the theme, uh, talking about uh, the love of our great God.
All right, well, we normally have our, some of our church family uh, events uh, on Wednesday nights, where we recognize birthdays and anniversaries, but a number of us were gone Wednesday night, and someone has a birthday today, and it's a special birthday. So when you turn 16, and it's on Sunday, and no one's saying to you on Wednesday night, you have to be embarrassed on Sunday night. So we're going to have Annie stand. <coughs> Annie is... 16 today. So let's sing happy birthday to Annie. All right. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. Amen. Thank the Lord for Annie. Are you singing solo tonight? No, you're not. Okay. So I heard some Herbsters were on for ministry tonight, and I said, Annie, the way to mark your 16th birthday is for you to sing your first solo in front of everybody. <clears throat> but she is not following pastoral leadership about that tonight. <clears throat> All right. We're thankful for her, and uh, not just her smile, but her spirit, and uh, very refreshing. Thank the Lord for um, God's grace in her life. Um, we uh, are not taking offerings uh, at this time, passing the offering plates, but the plates are back there uh, on the ledge of the sound booth, so you can uh, give there as the Lord leads. Uh, I do want to make a couple of announcements, and one is um, some of you may have caught that this Thursday and Friday, our former volleyball coach here, uh, Miss Katie Hager, longtime member of our church and school faculty, she is going to be in town, and um, she is going to have a two-day volleyball clinic um, for junior and senior high girls. So that is uh, from 9 in the morning till 2 in the afternoon, um, both Thursday and Friday. And uh, so there'll be a little lunch break and a challenge in there as well, but about four hours of volleyball each day. So I uh, wanted to let, again, all of our young ladies know about that. I sent out a note Wednesday, but if you have any questions and uh, it'll be a help to uh, our school team, but uh, both church and school ladies and friends of yours that would be interested, feel free to invite out, and uh, we'd be glad to have them this Thursday and Friday. And then a week from Saturday is our hosting of the Greenville Area Summer Spectacular uh, Bible Quiz Tournament. This is our first time to host it. It's been in a couple locations over the last several years, but um, last year they had right around 54 teams. They are two-person teams, so it's a good number of folks that are that will be here. I don't know that we'll get up there with the virus concerns, but I know there was right about 30 teams registered as of I believe last Thursday. So um, we're having uh, some of the men that helped to run that will be in on Tuesday, kind of looking at rooms, making some final decisions. But they would love to know um, all those that are quizzing from our own ministry by Tuesday, if possible. So I know a number of you have been working on memorizing John 1, 2, and 3. And there is no age limit on this. So from the youngest ones that are doing it right on up to adults that are doing it, you are welcome to participate. You just need to find one partner and go for it. And it's a... Uh, it's really, there's competition to this, but it is not nearly the intensity of uh, some of the bigger tournaments, and it's really a, an encouraging day of fellowship around uh, those first three chapters in the Gospel of John this year. So um, if you uh, have a partner and um, you're going to sign up, let me know. If you need any help, I'm glad to get you the link, help get you registered. Um, if 
you're, you're working on it and don't have a partner, let me know that too and we'll try to uh, connect up a few. I actually got a call from someone in Florida, or an email from someone uh, in Florida that um, says their daughter's coming but had a partner that isn't, isn't going to end up participating, so could we match them up? So there's things we can do along those lines and I would love to have a number of you. So that's July 18th, a week from Saturday. And then just another reminder that July the 27th through the 30th, so that is Monday through Thursday, last week, full week in July, we're going to be having our music camp, and uh, that will be led by Dr. Dave Shaleen from now uh, Northside Baptist Church in Charleston. He was for many years uh, in Illinois, was on staff with some of our relatives, and I uh, really appreciate him there. So there'll, there'll be three different levels of strings, uh, string track and the brass track, and then um, choral um, a couple times a day, all those days, and looking forward to a concert recital uh, at the end. But just want to keep you thinking about that so those, those dates are in front of you. And just be praying the Lord will continue to just put those pieces together and give us clarity to keep moving forward on, on what he'd have for us and uh, use these things in the lives of all of us and our church family, our young people in particular, continue to see them grow and develop. And uh, this Wednesday, as a matter of prayer, am I right? Is it this Wednesday you're still headed? Oh, it's a week from Tuesday. All right, so I hadn't heard that. Matt is looking at a total hip replacement and uh, trying to get that in before they relocate to Hong Kong. So just keep praying, even I didn't realize it had been moved, but pray the Lord will make all of that clear. But I uh, wanted to mention that. Let's pray together, and then we'll be ministered to uh, in music. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity uh, that we have to share uh, so many things, not just as a, as a preaching station or a chapel, but uh, to share as a body and as a church family. We rejoice as we mentioned, Annie, and, and really all of our young people, your, your grace in their lives, and uh, thank you for the growth and the encouragement they are to us, and uh, we also thank you for the opportunity to partner together as we give to support uh, the ministry of the gospel here and around the world, and we just pray that you'd continue to, to strengthen all of our missionaries, strengthen them physically um, during these unprecedented times. We ask that you just even to strengthen their, their, their vision and heartbeat for ministry and their confidence in, in your leading and guiding and trust in you. And we ask that you'd also strengthen them in terms of the ministry of the word and the giving of the gospel. And Lord, may we continue to rejoice as we hear of the work that you're doing uh, to expand your kingdom through these that we partner with. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
We'll sing one last time. You guys can go ahead and stand. We're going to sing hymn number 154, uh, For God So Loved the World. Uh, the third verse ties right in with what Pastor Fuller was talking about this morning, how because God loved the world and sent his son, we too should be going out into the world and witnessing. Um, so maybe we're thinking about that as we sing that last verse and all throughout just about God's amazing uh, love for us. Great, so you can be seated. show you the path you're to take. 
Wonderful admonition and encouragement from Psalm 34. Many of you are thinking along with that passage and appreciate the ladies ministering to us from that psalm. Please take your Bibles and turn this evening to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And as I mentioned this morning, we made a flip-flop in terms of our morning and evening uh, series. And Tonight we are considering the next section in our Matthew series that we typically been in in the mornings. But to remind us of our, the more recent ground that we've covered and the connections involved, I want us to begin by reading in Matthew chapter 5 verse 17 and we will read down through verse 30. So Matthew chapter 5 17 uh, down through verse 30. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For verily I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath thought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. 
Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. We'll stop our reading there. That's where we concluded last week. And with those words, all that entire section, Jesus has made it very clear that he did not come to relax the demands of the Old Testament law. He actually came to direct to a pursuit of obedience that was greater than what the most externally religious men of the day had found in terms of a relationship with the law. Some felt for instance, in the realm of personal relational conflicts. That if you just avoided murder, you were living within the bounds of the law, in particular the sixth of the Ten Commandments. But remember, Jesus said you could be guilty of unrighteousness, you could be guilty of breaking the sixth commandment by the passion of the heart and by the words of the tongue. And in a similar way, some thought that as long as you were not physically unfaithful to a wife that you were living within the bounds of the law, in that case, the seventh of the Ten Commandments. But Jesus said, as we've just read again, that when you look with desire on someone, not your spouse, you're guilty of adultery in the heart. That is also a breaking of the seventh commandment. Now, We've noted on multiple occasions that this kind of preaching had an evangelistic purpose to it. We see that when he gets to the end of this Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, and he's talking about many say to me, are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, have we not done this and done that? And, and he says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never what? I never knew you. So people that, that tend to think as long as I check off the external boxes of religion... You know, I'm from a Christian family, and I do all the Christian things that I'm certainly going to heaven. Jesus said those people are sadly mistaken, and he preached the way he did to get down to the heart, and he did it for an evangelistic purpose, for people to come to see that in themselves they have no righteousness to commend themselves to God. To be saved, we, have, we're, we're, we are sinners to such a degree that I can't contribute to any of it. So to be saved, I have to have a righteousness given to me that's completely outside of me. I have to have the righteousness of Jesus Christ applied to my account with God. And so, again, there's this evangelistic purpose that is clearly stated. But in addition to that purpose, this preaching also presented distinctive marks of the character of, of the true citizens of Christ's kingdom. While, while confessing sinfulness and trusting in Christ alone for their ultimate standing, true citizens of Christ's kingdom are also marked by pursuing, by the grace of God, obedience, especially in their heart to the very spirit of the law. And that means, for instance, in keeping with this last section, that, that kingdom citizens do battle against the influence of the flesh to the intent of abstaining from adultery. 
I know my standing with God is based on the righteousness of Christ. But in light of that, thankful for that, by the grace of God, I don't want to continue to be guilty of adultery. I want to see, the, I want to see God purify my mind in every way. And with that background recovered, and I know that's quick to summarize those 13 verses in several passages, but I want you to notice tonight as we move forward into verses 31 and 32 that Jesus is actually going to give a second way men might be guilty of adultery. Right? In verse 28, again, you could be guilty of adultery in the heart by looking with, with desire on someone, not your spouse. But now notice the second way you might be guilty of adultery. Look at verse 31. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth what? Committeth adultery. And I just, I'm emphasizing that so you see the connections in the passage. Now, you can see that the most straightforward emphasis of this text is that remarriage after divorce is another form of breaking the seventh commandment. It is itself a matter of adultery. Now, I know when you just make the, the straightforward statement, it does provoke some questions that come from both a consideration of the text and from outside the text. And, and I do trust that we'll be able to give considerable time to try to answer as many of those as possible, if not in tonight's message, and I, I think probably two more after this. But for the sake of, of just catching the thrust of this theme, all right, in, in keeping with the way the Lord proclaimed it, I want to remind us that this statement is not an obscure pronouncement in the Scripture. It's not like he said this only one time, and well, what are we supposed to make of that? All right? I, I want to have us turn to several. So look at chapter 19, Matthew chapter 19, still in the same book. Notice, in this case, another occasion. This one was prompted by the Pharisees asking him, what are the lawful causes to put away your wife? And Matthew 19, in verse 9, Jesus said, I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except to be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whosoever marrieth her, which is put away, doth commit adultery. Look over to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, and we'll come down to verse 11. And we'll read verses 11 and 12 together. Mark chapter 10 and verse 11. And he saith unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall be put away, uh, shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. All right? Look at Luke. Luke chapter 16. And we're going to read just verse number 18 here. Luke chapter 16, verse number 18. Notice, whosoever putteth away his wife and marrieth another committeth adultery. And whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband 
committeth adultery. Go over to Romans chapter 7. And we're going to read verses 2 and 3. Romans chapter 7. Verses 2 and 3. Notice. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she's loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. We'll stop our reading there. Look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And this will be the last of the additional passages that we turn to. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and... Uh, we'll look at verse number 10. And we'll even come back to this opening phrase of verse 10 and verse 11 uh, at, at another time in this series. But unto the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. And what Paul's saying there is this is something the Lord himself already spoke on. Okay, he's not saying I'm coming up with something new. He's saying right now I'm just reminding you this is what Jesus already preached. What did he preach? Well, look at verse number 10. Let not the wife depart from her husband, but and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. Let not the husband put away his wife. So you can see again in this teaching that if divorce has happened, the options are reconciliation or remaining um, unmarried right now all of these statements that we've just read they, they're in the midst of broader context and those contexts could be explored and again some of them we will uh, before we move away from this series but tonight i've just had us just read them right and and renew our minds about them to underscore that this is a repeated emphasis in the scripture that repeatedly the Bible says that remarriage after divorce is a form of what? It's a form of adultery. Right now, I want to say um, before I go any further that settling on this emphasis is really one of the hardest things for me to do in pastoral ministry. And there's multiple reasons for that. And, and one of the reasons is that I know that we can't answer all the questions that are going to come up um, in, in the course of one message. And so some, some people will feel like they're left hanging. Okay? And I know that's disappointing. But, but the greatest source of difficulty, I'm just talking about for me pastorally, is that in every church that I have been in, um, some of the folks that were the most significant blessing to our church family, and even just personal encouragement to me pastorally, are people that have already experienced divorce and remarriage. And, and I know them to be genuine, true, God-fearing people that are a blessing to me. And, and as I address it, I know that this can be painful. And, and I feel that. And I, uh, some of you know I grew up in a home impacted by, by these same dynamics. My dad left for the first time when I was 11. He came and went for a while until I was 12, and he left for good. And shortly after, he uh, 
I divorced my mother and, and remarried, and my mother has stayed single, and, and so there's a lot of uh, dynamics all the way through that. I know those very tender emotions from a kid's perspective and watching my parents, and so um, I, I, I just want to say to anyone that's here or any of our brethren that may be listening um, as well that um, I, I, I really, I just want to express my sympathy for the emotions that, that you may have as we work through this study. And really, I am praying for you, all of you, in, in, especially in that background, that, that really as the Holy Spirit ministers to us the mind of Christ, because we do need to get the mind of Christ about this, but as he does, that he will also minister the comfort and the, and the ministry of consolation that, that Christ promised he would also perform. And, and, and I trust that all of us, We'll, we'll just allow the Lord to minister to us in such a way, and I, I, I'm kind of referencing the personal dynamics and the emotions involved. I'm referencing all of that because I'm hoping that kind of raising it, um, we can um, ask the Lord to help us um, get past kind of emotions and experiences that might distract us from just really trying to get the mind of the Lord for us. And... Um, and as we turn our attention then with that back to the text, if you go back with me to chapter 5 and, and um, verses 31 and 32, where is the next section in, our, in uh, our study in this series, I just want to have us consider this opening statement that Jesus makes in verse 31. Jesus said, It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. Okay, so, so Jesus is raising the fact that, that the way some taught the law, they taught the law as saying, okay, if you're going to put away your wife, then you need to give her an actual legal document of divorcement. Now, <clears throat> in chapter 19, don't go there now for time's sake. Jesus was asked by the Pharisees, what are the grounds for divorce, essentially? And his reply was, what God has joined together, let not what? Let not man put asunder. And as soon as he just gave that dogmatic answer, the Pharisees actually said, but Moses commanded to give a writing of divorcement. Okay. What were the Pharisees referring to? And what is Jesus referring to when he says, some have said, the law says give, give divorcement. Now, there is a scene that, that is recorded, and I believe this is what he's referring to and what the Pharisees were referring to by citing Moses. There's a scene recorded for us in Deuteronomy 24, and we do need to turn there. All right? So start turning to Deuteronomy 24, and while you're going there, um, initially go past it and go to chapter 22, all right? So you're, you're on the move there anyway. But go to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 22 because we're going to get some important background information and then we will come to the reference in, in chapter 24. Now, beginning in verse 13 of chapter 22, okay, we're going to read about six different circumstances of unlawful physical intimacy. And we're going to see what the, what the prescribed response was to each of them. So the first one in verse 13 okay, is this. 
if a man take a wife and go in unto her and hate her and give occasions of speech against her and bring up an evil name upon her and say, I took this woman and when I came to her, I found her not a maid. Right now, I'm going to pause there. We would say that she was not a virgin. That, that he, okay, this man marries a lady that he believes has reserved herself completely for him. And then upon marrying her, he finds out to the contrary. All right? The response to that situation, if in fact it was proved, is described in, in verse number 21. All right? You come all the way down there. Notice verse 21. Then shall they bring out the damsel to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her with stones that she die. So the first case scenario was uh, a lady presented herself as being pure in the sense that she's reserved herself for her husband. He says she wasn't. They, they do the... Um, they do really the investigation and upon credible evidence find out that she has lied about that and the penalty was stoning. All right, that's the first case. The second case is verse 22. If a man be found lying with a woman married to an husband, um, then they shall both of them die, both the man that lay with the woman and the woman. All right, now that is... A case of what we would typically call what adultery right so that's the second case right the third case goes right into verse 23 if a damsel that is a virgin be betrothed unto a husband and a man find her in the city and lie with her then ye shall bring them both out under the gate of the city and ye shall stone them with stones that they die now betrothal in the Jewish culture was similar in some respects to our practice of engagement, but it was a stronger agreement. It was actually entered into by means of signing a contract, and it would require a writing of divorcement to break it, okay? uh, although the couple was not living together. So, so the stipulations for someone that was betrothed is very similar to those that were married, all right? And then I want us to look at the next situation and then we can kind of compare and understand a little more what's taking place in that third one. Notice the fourth one, which is verse 25. But if a man find a betrothed damsel in the field and the man force her and lie with her, then the man only that lay with her shall die. But unto the damsel thou shalt do nothing. There is in the damsel no sin worthy of death. For as when a man riseth against his neighbor and slayeth him, even so is this matter. For he found her in the field, and the betrothed damsel cried, and there was none to save her. Now, if you're able to stay with it here, in the third case, the damsel was where? The betrothed one was in the city. And in the fourth case, she's where? She's out in the country, we probably say today, out in the field. So... The idea behind that is that in the ancient cities, okay, where houses were built side, side by side and on top of each other, um, if the woman had cried out that someone's attempting to force her, she would be heard, right? And, and she tried to, um, to, um, get, to raise awareness. But out in the field, that may not have been the case. So really, the law is like giving the benefit of the doubt to the woman. 
if she's out in the field. She may have been guilty, but, but she's going to get the benefit of the doubt, whereas that was not needed in the city, because if she screamed, someone would hear her in the city. All right? The fifth case, all right? Fifth case is verse 28. If a man find a damsel that is a virgin which is not betrothed, and lay hold on her, and lie with her, and they be found. Right? Now, that, this is immorality we generally call fornication, premarital fornication. Okay? Two single individuals. And, and that is actually the only sin under discussion for which the death penalty was not prescribed. The respon- there's a responsibility for a young man um, that's assumed for this. There's other passages we could come back to. He, he has to take responsibility for her. He should marry her unless her dad says no, which uh, another text refers to. All right, then the sixth example, all right, is a man shall not take his father's wife. And that is incest. And again, the penalty called for under the Mosaic Law, Leviticus 20, verse 11, was the death penalty. All right? So he goes through six, the law goes through, Moses is preaching here, he goes through six occasions of unlawful intimacy. Now, with those situations in mind, I want to skip forward to chapter 24, where the Pharisees and the Lord are discussing. Okay? And we're going to read verses 1 and 2 and then make some observations. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it into her hand and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. Now we're going we're gonna to continue, but I, I need to stop here to say this. The meaning of uncleanness is not clear. If you look at verse 1, they get married, she finds no favor, he's found uncleanness, right? The, what that word means, I'm saying, is not clear. Now, you may have a marginal note, which indicates the Hebrew expression is literally what? Does anybody have that? Okay, some, some and I just say my Bible publishers have a note there that says a matter of nakedness, all right? <clears throat> not all the commentaries are agreed about that, word students, all right? Um, it, we, it's difficult for us to know what that is. But that does lead to a second observation. The second observation is that whatever it is in Deuteronomy 24.1, it cannot be what? It cannot be the sins that were mentioned in chapter 22. Right? Because those sins mentioned in chapter 22... For anyone involving either betrothed or married required what penalty? Okay, it required the death penalty. Now you say, why can't it? Well, this is the exact same address. That is, from chapter 22 to chapter 24. This is still Moses. It's all one setting. This is the exact same address. He is, as it were, rehearsing the law. Deuteronomy is his re-preaching of the law. Okay? And, and he's making applications. Okay? But whatever's going on here, it's not like he preached something in chapter 22 and then he immediately reverses it in chapter 24. You follow that? So, so these men 
who were regarding their wives with disfavor could not have been accusing them of adultery. Because if they did that, that would require proof. And if convicted, the result was the result was stoning. Now, what these men were attempting to accomplish, I think is going to become clear a little bit later. But I'm just trying to have us nail down that whatever this matter of uncleanness was, it wasn't adultery. All right? Now, a third observation. This, this is, and I would, I would probably say that the, the last few minutes and the next few minutes will probably be as taxing as anything I have ever led us into. All right? But this is in here, in the Bible, and it's right at the crux of the discussion between Jesus and the Pharisees. And it's critical that we get it. All right? So, I, I, I wouldn't mind. I, you don't normally do it on Sunday, but if you need to stand up, you know, and do a jumping jack or whatever, <coughs> um, this will be really important. And I would encourage you to get out a pen and make notes in your Bible if, if you do that. All right? A third observation that we need to make is that there are two expressions. One is let him write it's in towards the end of verse one of chapter 24 because he had found uncleanness in her let him write okay and then in verse number two when she is departed out of his house she may go all right the the expressions let him write and she may go are ambiguous and and i know you don't want to hear that Um, And you may say, I don't even know what ambiguous is. Well, that's part of it, okay? (laughs) Ambiguous, ambiguous means it can have two or more possible meanings. That the phrase itself can have more than one meaning. All right? And that's the case with these two expressions as they're found in the Hebrew language, right? Now, they could be understood the way it is here as we're reading it. They could, they could be understood as if they are what? Um, as if they are imperatives. Making a command. Okay, so in particular where it says, let him give her. That sounds like it's making a command. You don't find favor in your wife because of uncleanness? Then I command you to do what? Give her right, all right? It could mean that. I'm saying the Hebrew could mean that. Um, But these expressions could also be understood as declarative expressions. Not as imperative, but as declarative. They're just reporting on what was happening. All right? If understood this way, Moses isn't commanding them to give a writing of divorcement. But Moses is merely saying, if a man decides to divorce his wife, and, now verse 2, she in turn decides to remarry. So not let him do it, and she may go, but he has done it, and she has done it. Right? Now watch your Bible. I'm going to read them with the declarative idea as if it's a report of what happened versus a command. So watch there. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some, I'm going to use this expression because it's difficult, indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorcement and puts it in her hand 
and sends her out of his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. All right? Now, you can see the difference between merely reporting what's happening and prescribing this is the way it should happen. Now, there, I'll back up about what I'm saying about the Hebrew. There is no controversy about what the correct Hebrew words are. I just want to say that. This is not, like if somebody wants to come to the text and translation controversy, it's not here. Okay, nobody's debating what the Hebrew words are. The Hebrew words are the same in any Hebrew text. It's just that, like some of our English words, sometimes expressions are ambiguous. You know what somebody's meaning by the context. Or sometimes you're not sure. What did he exactly, what was he trying to say when he said that? All right, now, in this case, the problem is not actually as big as what it might seem right now. Because right now we're like, oh, this is a big deal. And you're saying we don't know. It's not that big of a deal in this particular case because we have Jesus' own interpretation of it. Okay? Now, I'm not going to go back there to Matthew 19 because we've got more to do right here. But it's Matthew 19 where we get Jesus. Jesus said, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. The Pharisees said, well, then why did Moses command to give a writing of divorcement? And Jesus replied, Moses what? Do you remember what he said? He actually said, Moses allowed you to give a writing of divorcement because of the what? The hardness of your heart. So, if Jesus is interpreting this, okay, and he is, and his interpretation is the infallible one, right? Moses isn't here commanding, okay? <clears throat> Moses is allowing because of the hardness of your heart is what Jesus said. Now, what is, what is the hardness of their hearts that Jesus is getting at by interacting with them in this scene? All right, well, I'm going I'm to go back to what we do know to this point. The men have gotten married. They're dissatisfied with their wives for some reason, and they're sending them out. Those wives that are sent out, they do what? They marry other men. Now, verse 3, we learn that in some cases, those other men were sending them out again. Look at verse 3. And if the latter husband hate her. So we're on the second husband now. Right? First husband gets married. He doesn't like her. He sends her away, gives her divorcement. She goes and marries. Now her second husband hates her. He gives her a bill of divorcement and gives it into her hand and sendeth her out of his house. Now, in that kind of circumstance, verse 4 does issue a command and it is stated in the negative and, and this is a clear command and it's the only clear command in the passage. Okay? Once this woman has been sent away and she remarries another man, Look at verse 4. Her former husband, that's back to the first one, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. After that, 
expression here, she is defiled, for that is abomination before the Lord. Okay? And then the last two phrases of verse 3 indicate that's the case even if her second husband died. All right, now, we need to bring this to a conclusion with a summary of what we've observed, all right? So one thing we can say is that Moses was not giving rise to a new institution of divorce. Okay, Moses is not creating the civil step that we would call divorce. Divorce was already present. And in fact, and it seems to be that it was far too rampant. The new law given by Moses was actually designed to stop a horrible sin. Jesus said, Moses allowed it because of the hardness of your hearts. What was the horrible sin? And this is where... We have to do this in the text, but I hate doing it. I hate putting two and two together for the conclusion it reaches. I'll tell you what the sin is, and and, and then we'll explore it. But the sin was wife-swapping. All right? These men were divorcing their wives, in some cases, to enjoy temporary affairs without it being regarded as adultery. It's hard to know whether the women felt powerless to do anything about it or whether they were willing participants, but, but they were going into relations with other men under the guise of being their wife, and when that swap was over, the men were expecting to get their original wives back. I mean, this is like a wink-wink agreement between men to, hey, let's swap for the weekend. But I'll give a writing of divorcement so that it isn't technically adultery. And when it's over, you give her a writing of divorcement and she comes back to me. That was nothing more than a sophisticated loophole allowing for legalized adultery. Now, Moses' command then was, if you divorce your wife and she remarries, you can never have her to be your wife again. Moses' words could not be construed as promoting divorce. Moses was prohibiting an abominable practice. And you could see, I really, <laughs> I really believe that if we were there in the exchange between Jesus and those Pharisees, that this would have been as close as it could be to, as it were, you know, smoke coming out Jesus' ears and him getting fiery. He says, what God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. They say, yeah, well, Deuteronomy 24, Moses commanded to give a writing of divorcement, and it's if Jesus turns on them and says, look... You know Moses didn't command that. Moses allowed it because of the hardness of your hearts, and you are horrible to even attempt to twist that scripture to some kind of advantage. Okay. Remarriage uh, and, and, and the divorce and remarriage and, and Moses' 
uh, what he gave was because of the hard-heartedness of wicked men, and he's trying to stop a horrible practice, right? And he, Jesus brings that up in verse 31. Now, we're not going to be able to take the time tonight to pursue the text any further. Okay, that's why I said we're going to leave you hanging. Next week, Lord willing, we'll consider that exception clause. Okay, and then we need to consider one more uh, aspect of the text. But I do want to conclude with just a couple applications from the ground we have covered. Okay? And, and the first one is this. This passage really does settle the question of whether a second marriage ought to be broken up for the sake of trying to reestablish the first marriage. Should a second marriage, and I'm just, I'm going to use my own example, and I'm sorry for the tenderness of that, but after my dad had divorced my mom and married, I, for a while, even as a teenager, struggled with the fact that if my, if my dad really repented, that what my dad should do is my dad should divorce his wife, and he should get back with my mom. All right, this passage actually nails that down, that no, that is not the mind of God. Now, and, and we could consider all the reasons for that. I look on that whole situation now, and can you imagine the, that additional baggage and damage and all that could be done um, if, if that was the situation? But some people... Haven't, haven't seen this even in the text. They just haven't seen this text. And, and, and their heart is so burdened and about it. And, um, and, and you know, they read things like, if, you, if you're remarried while your, your first husband is still alive, then you're an adulterer, and I don't want to be an adulterer. And, and some people are so fervent, at, they take such a fervent stand against remarriage that they have actually taken the next step and said that, a, a second or third marriage, whatever it may be, after divorce, is living in a constant state of adultery. And you may not have encountered this, but some of our brethren in Nova Scotia in particular had encountered people that told them, and I tried to follow up because I thought this was too far-fetched, but it wasn't too far-fetched. A, a man gave me a book to make the argument that anyone living in a, a second marriage is living in a constant state of adultery, and because 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says that no adulterer is going to heaven, that that means you could not be saved. And they're, they're literally putting pressure on them to break off their second marriage lest they go to hell. Now, the problems with that position, are, again, are multiple, and, and we, we're going to come back to another one later, but... The, the clearest one is that it flies in the face of the only direct revelation that we have. And right here, we have absolute direct revelation that God's mind is don't break off the second to try to get back to the first. That's, that's a logical argument that, that is taking Scripture but pressing it to the point of contradicting other clear Bible truth. Okay. And that could all seem very academic. But, but I am thankful with the mind of God to be able to counsel anyone who's in a second marriage. And if you have an opportunity to counsel someone that is like that, someone who says, I, 
man, you know, after divorce, I remarried. I should have never done it. I can't believe what I did. And they really, they, they feel a great burden about that. I would, I would just say to you, well, the answer is humble yourself. Absolutely. Confess what you did was adultery. Recognize there may be some scars. But understand that the mind of God for you is to commit yourself to seeing your present marriage be as close to the biblical ideal as possible. And do you know what? It does not matter. I, I can say this actually to everybody who's sitting here that's married. No matter what the status is, how you got into the marriage you're in, I can actually say with full confidence from the Bible that God wants you to, to commit yourself to the best marriage you can possibly have to the person that you are married to right now, no matter how you got into it, and seek his grace to be as close to the biblical ideal as possible. You don't need to have even the slightest hint of reservation about that. And, and, and this kind of teaching, when it's clear like this, gives me strength to say, all right, then if this is the mind of God, it's the will of God, and I can get grace from God to do what I ought to do in this marriage and to see the blessing of God in it. You should not voluntarily break up a second marriage even for the purpose of reestablishing the first. That's the mind of God for you. The second application that we need to make Okay, and this one is going right to the heart of Jesus preaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Is that anyone who looks for a way to get out of their marriage, in particular, to be free to pursue some other relationship, all right, I want to get out of this and marry a guy that will treat me right, whatever it may be. You know, I want, I want to get out of this and marry some woman that is not like the one I'm married to. And, and they try to look for a way out of their marriage to have the freedom to pursue. Jesus puts them into the category of what? Hard-heartedness. And just, listen, just like looking to lust is committing adultery in the heart, even the thought, I wish I could get out of my marriage so I have freedom for a better relationship. Even that thought, Jesus said, is a violation of the seventh commandment. That's his exposition of the seventh commandment and his application of it. And do you know what happens when, when somebody starts to look for a way out? And they just keep looking, and they get counsel, and keep looking, get counsel, keep looking, get counsel. They're probably going to find some preacher somewhere that'll tell them it's all right. And I haven't counseled it, but I have a pastor friend that actually counseled two people, married, believers, knowing that they would be wrong to initiate divorce. So they lived in the same house, in separate rooms, separate lives and when he actually got down to it he realized that both of them were actually hoping the other one would be unfaithful so that they would have the freedom to get out of the relationship and i just come back to this no matter what else goes on with the exception clause and working through other details if i'm hoping for a way to get out 
it's adultery in the heart. And you've heard it said, get writing divorcement. Jesus saying, uh-uh, you look for a way to get out. That's hard-hearted. That's adultery. Now, situational ethics, right, is one of the foundational doctrinal positions of humanism. Um, the official statement of their positions in the Humanist Manifesto, it actually cites, listen, in the Humanist Manifesto, in one of their official, I call them doctrinal statements, sometimes we say, you know, secular humanism. Actually, humanists describe themselves as religious humanists. It's a religion to them. But they've replaced man, they've replaced God with man, worshiping man and man's ability. But they actually, they actually cite divorce, abortion, euthanasia, suicide, and they'll even say multiple variations of fornication as falling under the umbrella of situational ethics. They include it in there. The Pharisees asked Jesus about situational ethics regarding divorce, and the first part of Jesus' answer is God's plan is permanence. Let God's join together, let not man put asunder. And the second part of his answer was Moses' allowance was because of the hard-heartedness of sinful men. And you don't want to go there. And so, brethren, what, how do we respond? One, we renew our mind with what really is God's perspective. And number two, we just really, wherever we're at, we just, with humility and confession of our need and weakness, we commit ourselves to the grace of God and pleading with the Lord to strengthen us that I give everything I have to my marriage now or those of you that are, are pursuing that in the will of God to whatever marriage I have in the future, God intends for me to put all of my energy into seeing that marriage with that individual be the very best it can be for the glory of God by the grace of God. And that's where I need to come out of this. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And I know much more teaching tonight than, than necessarily proclamational. And yet I just, I just want to give opportunity for each one, wherever you are at, for, for some, there may be some really tender emotions, even tonight, personal or extended family, whatever it may be. Others uh, may just be a matter of just really recommitting myself to the pursuit of purity. Maybe single and marriage is, is considerably in the distance for you. But there is a real nobility. We talk about romance and noble romance and various places you could see it i, I want to say to all of you and I'll, I'll say to you single men and as well married men but i'll say to you single men you don't know who god has for you to marry but i want i want to tell you there's nobility in you keeping yourself one out of honor to god and two even love to the one that you would marry you don't even know who she is she may never know what you're thinking but you, you restrain yourself from impure thoughts because you want to be able to give yourself completely and wholly to her. Married man, that's the highest of nobility. And ladies as well, I trust by the grace of God we'll really recommit ourselves to 
God's standard, seek his grace, or we know we have fallen. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you again tonight for the treasure that we have in your word. We thank you for the opportunity to have it complete, to be able to consider something that Moses rehearsed with people thousands of years ago, then to hear Jesus himself preach on that, interpret it for us, and apply it again thousands of years ago, but to find it to be so alive and powerful and relevant to where we're at right now in our lives and in our culture. And Lord, we thank you that, that just any faithful understanding of your word is, is something that does a washing and a cleansing and a renewing and a granting of life. And Lord, we, we pray that, that you would bless us to that end by your spirit as, as as brethren are responding humbly and in faith to your word, may it just have a, a real purifying effect in the lives of your people, a sanctifying effect, a transformational effect into more and more likeness to the Savior whose words we're considering tonight. And Lord, we pray as well that the fruit of considering uh, this kind of truth, believed and responded to, would would be uh, increasingly God-honoring marriages that are to your honor and glory, to the good of all that are around us. And, and we pray for great grace for those that have some tender memories or maybe some tender circumstances right now. Lord, we pray for a strength that is, that is not their own, but is great grace that you've promised to give. We pray, Lord, that you administer to that. And may they know comfort and consolation and strength in the light of your word. And we thank you for the opportunity to commit all these things to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to turn to 392. 392. <laughs> um, you can imagine, I'm, I mean, 